Welcome to Heels in the Courtroom, a podcast about successfully navigating law and life, featuring the women trial attorneys at the Simon Law Firm. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Heels in the Courtroom. I'm Liz Lenevy, and today I'm joined by Amy Gunn, Elizabeth McNulty, and Megan Crow. And what we're talking about is social media, everyone's favorite thing. And I thought what might be an interesting episode is the various ways that we have used social media, the ways that we've seen social media used against our clients, and talking about both the positives and the negatives that can come out of social media when we are litigating our cases. And hopefully this will inspire some folks who might be doing their own discovery into coming up with new and clever ways to find information out. Or on the flip side of that, maybe inspire some folks to think about how to communicate these pitfalls with their clients so that they don't find themselves in a negative position. And the reason I sort of thought about this topic is because very recently I used Facebook to find a witness in a case, a very important witness, and it was very useful. And I'm sort of thinking about another case that I recently had where social media played an incredibly important role in establishing liability. And so in this particular case, we represented this kid who had gotten into a motor vehicle collision. And I could already tell from the police report that there was going to be a fight about liability. Whose fault was it for causing this accident? And to sort of set the stage a little bit, prior to the collision occurring, another car that was not involved in the actual collision had become disabled in the left lane. So it wasn't on the shoulder. And then this was on a pretty busy stretch of highway in Missouri. That disabled vehicle called police. The police came and parked directly behind the disabled vehicle with lights flashing to make sure that it could alert oncoming drivers that there was something going on in the road so that other drivers could avoid that obstruction presented by the disabled vehicle. Well, the defendant in this case was driving a really large truck and had a really large trailer attached to his truck. And he decided he was going to be a good Samaritan and pull up behind the police cruiser to protect the police cruiser. He wanted to protect the police officer from oncoming vehicles. The problem is it was a large black trailer and it essentially covered the entire police cruiser from oncoming vehicles. So you don't see the flashing lights anymore which is the best way to alert people that something's going on up ahead when you see flashing lights. So now you just have a big black trailer and people are driving, you know, 70 miles an hour down this stretch of road. So he parks his trailer and within a couple of minutes of doing so, my client, not realizing that he was there, slams into the back of him, incredibly injured. And my first thought is, well, his argument's going to be, I was stopped in the middle of the road to try to help this police officer. And I had no idea that this other kid who he wasn't paying attention and he was speeding. And that's why this accident happened. The defenses immediately became clear to me as soon as I read the police report. So I decided to get online and just do a little bit of research into this other driver. And within about half an hour of just going through his social media, his Facebook, his Instagram, I found his YouTube channel. And from his YouTube channel, he had uploaded a live stream, something titled, got into a crazy accident today, something like that. <laughs> 
And I was like, well, that's interesting. (laughs) How many crazy accidents? Yeah. How many crazy accidents are you getting into? So I click it and I start watching it. And lo and behold, he had dash cam footage from both the front end of his vehicle as well as the back end of the trailer. And so what you see happening is immediately before my client slams into the back of his trailer, there is another car ahead of him. And everyone's driving very, very fast because it's rush hour and it's a highway. And what you see happen is that the car immediately ahead of my driver, which my driver had sort of a lower profile vehicle. So he's lower to the ground. The car ahead of him is an SUV. So it's bigger. It's blocking what's going on ahead. The SUV last second switches lanes because it realizes that that black trailer is actually stopped. And it's not that it's, you know, continuing to move with traffic. It's completely stopped. So the SUV jerks into the other lane. And my client has just a couple of moments to realize that there is that obstruction, that big trailer in the middle of the road. And he tries to also make that same maneuver to get over, but he just misses it. He clips the trailer, spins out, and that's how the accident happened. And I'm like, well, this is good footage. It takes a little bit of the responsibility off of my client. And you see throughout the video, And it's just a couple seconds long. He didn't upload the entire dash cam footage, but you see other cars sort of having to get over at the last second because a lot of drivers aren't realizing that that trailer is stopped there. And I'm thinking, this is gold. This is great. Okay, great. I'm going to keep watching this live stream, though. And it was a live stream that had been recorded several months ago, and he had just posted it. And so I'm watching the whole live stream, though. I'm kind of taking a little transcript down. And at one point, he starts to talk about Oh, you know, and it was just crazy. That kid came out of nowhere and blah, blah, blah. But, you know, at one point, another driver pulled up next to me in a really nice Denali, really nice SUV. And he starts to describe the car because he's really into cars, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) And this other driver tells me, you know, I almost hit you because I didn't see you there. I didn't realize you were stopped. And he's like, and you know, and there were a couple of times the cop and I were standing there and we were watching a couple people almost run right into me. And, you know, I was getting a little nervous. And then within a couple of minutes, this kid slams into the back of me. And I'm thinking, oh, so you had prior knowledge. You had prior knowledge that this could happen. And yet you did not move your vehicle so that drivers could see, again, the flashing lights. And that's the reason that the cop was out there was to provide that safety and that warning because people can see those lights from a distance. I mean, I was already thinking about all right, this is how I'm going to hire a human factors expert and they're going to explain the importance of lights and the effect that that has on drivers as opposed to just an inanimate black object in the middle of the road. And when we prepared our demand package, I sent that entire video stream basically saying, here's your insured admitting that he had prior knowledge of the danger that he was creating in the middle of this road. And we got that case settled. Yes. We didn't have to fight about it. There was no longer a fight anymore. So that story has stuck with me about the importance of just going that extra mile when you are doing that social media research. And so I want to throw it out to the rest of the room as far as what stories do you have, whether good or bad, about your experiences using social media in Discovery. I'm actually glad to hear a good social media story because most of my experience with social media is pretty bad. Because we represent human beings and in the age of social media and oversharing, it seems like many, many posts are made of things that 
seem innocuous at the time by the person posting them because they're not recognizing how it's going to be used against them later, essentially. When clients hire us now, I tell them, you have to be very careful about your social media because it really is, everything will be used against you later. Just like the criminal admonitions, like this will be used against you later. So please keep that in mind. A case is coming to mind right now from a number of years ago where I represented a client who had had a medical procedure that had caused a condition that's known as arachnoiditis. It's a condition, a syndrome, if you will. It's when you have an epidural, a needle in your back for a steroid shot, whether it's for childbirth or other pain or whatever it is. I think this client, I think it was for childbirth. And the way the needle is inserted, the way the procedure is performed, creates scar tissue within the bundle of nerves where it's administered and it causes back pain. So this client comes to us, we research it, we file suit against the physician, I guess it was an anesthesiologist, and proceed with the lawsuit. My client tells me all the concerns that she has, all the problems that she has, including physical. She can't do the things she used to do. She was a young woman. Anything that she can do causes a great deal of pain. She's on a great deal of medication. She can't work, on and on and on. So, of course, I'm believing her because I want to and trust people. And so in her deposition, my client's deposition, she denied being able to do basically anything that she used to enjoy in terms of hobbies and recreational activities and just basically was not able to enjoy her life because of the pain from this condition from the alleged medical malpractice. She gives this deposition very clear terms, no wishy-washy. And it wasn't too long after that, that the defendant, and I don't know if the defendant found it later, because I don't think it came out in the deposition, produced to me a number of Facebook posts and videos. And what had happened, because I believe she was private, what had happened is she had been through kind of a yucky divorce and her ex-husband hated her. And I believe she was also on social security disability. And the ex-husband called Social Security Disability to investigate her. So Social Security had investigator and she had federal charges filed against her for fraud based on the fact that she had posted things on her social media, such as bow hunting. And that's not easy to do, y'all, when you got a bad back. I mean, I'm talking about bow and arrow hunting of animals, and four-wheeler riding, concert going, and all the things that she denied the ability to do. And it was ugly. To me, it was very obvious that there was a trust problem. So we ended up having to dismiss the case. And I had a very difficult conversation with her about that. And of course, she was still kind of in denial about what she could and couldn't do. And It was very upsetting to her, as you can imagine, that we weren't able to pursue the case. And I don't have any doubt that she truly did have problems from this condition. It's just if you aren't truthful with what you can and cannot do, and it's proven so vividly with videos, there's just no coming back from that. So I hate social media. And Liz, I can only dream of the day that I can be as proficient as you are, where I could have a different opinion about social media than I do now. (laughs) I will say, I think more often than not, being on the plaintiff side, it does more harm than it does good. This is a situation where I had an individual plaintiff, but I also had an individual defendant. 
And this individual defendant yeah. was also very active online and did the thing that I'm sure if he had had an attorney at the time would have advised him, don't do that. I think that's much easier in car accident cases. I've had other car accident cases, again, individual defendants where I've been able to go onto their Facebook and I find all these photos and videos that weren't produced to me in discovery. Uh-oh. I've had that happen before in one case in particular where it was two teenagers. My client was a teenager. The defendant was a teenager as well. And her mom had posted a whole bunch of photos of the accident and her mom had an open Facebook page. And I had seen this right before the defendant's deposition, basically like the 24 hours before when I was prepping, I found them and I showed up to the deposition and I showed them and I said, is this your mom's Facebook? Mm. Did your mom post all these photos? And her mom was in the room at the time because she was a minor and was very upset very upset that I had been on her Facebook and the defense attorney was very upset that I had been on the mother's Facebook. And I'm thinking, what? it was your responsibility you to, to turn these photos <laughs> to me. Why am I, if anyone should be upset, I think it's me. Yeah, <laughs> let's get clear. But again, that's very rare that I feel on the plaintiff side, we get to use that to our advantage. But if you do the digging and you get lucky enough that it's out there, it can be very helpful. And that's another case that we were able to, not because of the photo, necessarily, but the photo certainly didn't hurt. We were able to settle the case. Liz, exactly what you said. I think that the takeaway from both of your stories and my experience has been it takes a little bit of time and nine times out of 10, you're not going to find anything by looking at the social media profiles of the parties involved in your case. But doing it is worth it because that one time, that one little nugget you're going to find is going to be super helpful. And I also think it's worth doing a social media dig on your own clients to oh, be yes. prepared for whatever dirt may come out and you can have a conversation about it and, and at least have a plan of how to combat it or be prepared for it. But the best story that I have using social media in a case is luckily a good case. We had a form of medical malpractice case and part of the allegations of negligence was that this physician was not spending time with the patients, really just sort of going in and out, 30-second consultation, if you will, and then prescribing medication. We were doing some internet digging and found that this physician had a blog that they essentially used as their diary online, public. Uh, what? And it was very alarming and full of gold nuggets for us as the plaintiff's lawyers in this case. And in particular, there was one blog post. And as a whole, the blog, the theme of the blog was they weren't sure if they wanted to be a physician anymore and talking about all of the negative parts of the job and essentially just using it to vent about the job. And we found a post that said, you know, the insurance companies put so much pressure on us and we have so many patients to get in in a day and we're so pressured by money and there's all these money pressures. And the whole theme of it was very much the overlords are dictating our time and I don't feel like I have the time to dedicate to the patients as much as they deserve. Nice. And it was mind-blowing to me that this doctor would put that in writing on the internet for all to see. 
maybe they weren't thinking that far ahead of, you know, other people are going to look at this because I'm sure a lot of blog users use it essentially as an online diary and don't really expect viewers or readers. But that was not the case. And we did our research and found it. And obviously, it could have been detrimental to their case. We sort of went about it, holding some of it back for use at trial, didn't put forward all of it in the deposition. But they clearly knew that we had found it because between the time that we had found this and taken our screenshots and saved it and archived it. And the time that the deposition went on, the website had been deleted. Oh, surprising. Shocking. It feels like some spoliation of evidence. It's not ethical to tell your client to delete anything. It's unethical to do that. And so, you know, the case ended up settling. So I don't know what the bang factor with a jury would have been from that. But it was really a moment of us finding just an absolute gold nugget in a haystack. And that doesn't happen often, but it can be so worth it when you do. And another sort of flip side to that, not all your searches can reveal something good. I had a friend in law school who, as an intern, was put to the task of social media digging with probably 10 other interns. And they spent hours and hours and hours looking at the social media profiles of some bellwethers that were getting ready to go to trial in a class action. And I think that they maybe found one or two nuggets that were helpful, certainly not groundbreaking or really changed the case at all. But it certainly shows that you can put a lot of effort and time and resources into doing this internet digging. Sometimes it'll work out, sometimes it doesn't. But I I certainly think it's worth at least a cursory search in every case. Elizabeth, how has social media treated you? Uh, Pretty poorly. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty poorly. Social media played a part in one of the less pleasant, more painful hearings I've had to attend in my uh, legal career. Mine has more to deal with what needs to be produced in discovery with regards to social media. Our position is always, if it has something to do with the case or a statement about the defendant that our client made, that it needs to be produced. Otherwise, not going to be produced. Oftentimes, defense, they want everything that our client has posted on social media. And in this specific case, it wasn't everything that the client had posted, but it was just everything involving social media, period. And they believed that they were entitled to private messages. Nope. For some reason, the judge agreed. Wrong. And we had to turn over, I think it was about 10,000 pages of social media information which meant I had to go through 10,000 pages of anything that had ever been posted on social media, but also anything that social media had been used to communicate with other people, which I found to be way outside the bounds of anything that's discoverable. The judge apparently did not agree with me, but I, I just think it was just so overbroad. And like even any defendants that ask for that, I don't think they ever expect to actually get it. So it's just shocking experience, quite frankly. That does surprise me me. My position has always been you are not entitled to my client's entire internet history. You're entitled to anything that is you know, relevant in the pleadings. If I put it into the petition, if it's about the incident, if it's about the injuries, okay, fine. I've opened the door to that. 
But the entirety of everything and all the text messages and all that my clients ever said or done since this injury, no. And I've actually, I've never had anyone fight me on it because frankly, I think the Missouri case law is really good for plaintiffs on this. Courts are trying to make sure that this isn't a fishing expedition because that's what that is. 10,000 pages of records where maybe two pages are relevant and it's just open season on someone's private messages. That's a fishing expedition. Yeah, I read all that case law to the judge and uh, apparently it was not found to be persuasive at the time. Well, and that's the lesson, right? Because I think there are judges, obviously, case in point, that don't see it our way and will order those things to be produced. So it's incumbent upon us, like I said, when I sign up a case, again, we cannot say delete things. We cannot say that, but we can say set your privacy to the maximum Be aware that people are watching you, trolling you and your loved ones about these allegations and your damages, anything else that could weigh upon the case. And I need to see it. I need to know what's out there because I've always believed that I can fix or spin maybe pretty much anything that's out there, except I can't fix a lie or I can't fix something that I don't really know is out there you're trying to hide. So it is really important at the beginning of a case to just have that discussion and get that out there. Elizabeth, in that situation, that is shocking, and you're not wrong to be shocked. But unfortunately, sometimes those things happen, and I'm glad that there wasn't anything terrible in there, because otherwise, I agree with you, that's pretty much the definition of fishing expedition. But we don't always win our motions on that. I'm sorry that I have to bring up <laughs> such a painful memory yeah, for was, you. That was the subject of the worst day of my legal practice. So if you haven't listened to that podcast, oh, no. that is what I was talking about. I hit a skunk on the way there. Oh, yeah, that's super cool. That was a bad omen. Pretty bad day. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, that's terrible. But also having to go through your client's messages, because I've had that before, where I've had to go through a client's Facebook and I say, look, I need your password. I need your login information so that I can determine what is. And look, if it's something that I feel like I might get in trouble for not producing, even if it's on the line, I'll produce it. I would rather err on the side of caution and trying to make a justification for why not to produce it. And so, I mean, that makes me really nervous, the idea of just someone getting any and all records and just getting to just dig through everything like that. All right. Well, thank you all so much for, again, just sharing your stories, your knowledge. I know some of those stories were probably harder to recount than others. But as always, this has been a great conversation with you all. And thank you all for joining us on this conversation. As always, new episodes drop every Wednesday. And if you have anything you want to write into us, you can reach out to us at comments at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Heels in the Courtroom is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm. At the Simon Law Firm PC, we believe in the power of pooling resources in order to create powerful results. We often lend our trial skills and experience to lawyers around the country to achieve better results for their clients. Our attorneys welcome the opportunity to work with you on your case, offering vast resources, seasoned litigators, and a sterling reputation. You can contact us at 314-241-2929. And if you enjoyed the podcast, Feel free to share your thoughts with Amy, Liz, Erica, Mary, Elizabeth, and Megan at heelsinthecourtroom.law. And subscribe today because the best lawyers never stop learning.